Hey everybody, I'm Aiden Mattis. This is Aiden Thornbury. Welcome to another episode of the Lore Lodge official podcast. We have a very special guest today, and that is YouTuber uh, who covers all of things, all things strange, dark, and mysterious, Mr. Ballin. John, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, I'm uh, Mr. Ballin. Uh, my real name is John, and uh, Aiden reached out to me, I don't know, maybe six, seven weeks ago. Uh, it was around the time that I actually was watching his TikTok account. He does a great job covering some of the uh, unsolved mysteries and missing people stories that are totally in my lane. And so I was already watching Aiden on TikTok. And so when he hit me up and asked if I would um, hop on an interview, I, I agreed. I rarely do interviews just because I, I'm bad at scheduling and typically screw <laughs> things up. So, But I made time for this, and I'm excited to be here. Yeah, that's that's it. I'm a YouTuber. Here I am. All right. Yeah, so, oh, my God, the chat is just flying by. Hello, everybody. How many people yeah. are in the chat? Nice. Uh, looks, 355. Looks like yeah, they are, right they are zooming. I'm, what, I'm interested to see the interaction between my usual viewers and your usual viewers because ours, ours have a few trends they like to run. Like, they'll just start spamming the word milk in the chat. Of course, yeah. Um, so we'll see if they get, we'll see if they can get the, the milk chain going. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll be impressed. But yeah, uh, to dive right in, um, I started off before I was doing anything on TikTok. I was actually watching you because um, I was bored at my normal nine to five corporate job and had nothing better to do but you know watch stuff about uh, people going missing in random circumstances. I, some of the ones that you've actually done videos on had me so completely lost uh i think my favorite one of my favorite series he had was the uh like people encountering like unexplainable creatures and entities um so i'm definitely curious i think i want to hop straight into there like i don't think you ever talk about it but you know what are what kind of thoughts do you have on like the the supernatural realm of things like do you believe are you superstitious a skeptic yeah i i uh I'm cautious with this, uh, yeah. not not because I'm trying to hide anything, but I think that my role on uh, on the internet is, at least in my mind, is to be a storyteller, not so much a um, a scary storyteller or a right. mystery scary or a mystery storyteller. It's it's that I really want to be a pure storyteller, and 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 obviously I have my own opinions about mm -hmm. every single story I, I covered. In fact, right. you can typically tell how I feel just based on my general emotions about the story. Mm -hmm. um, but I do really try to maintain uh, a sort of objective uh, react, uh, sorry, a sort of <laughs> objective uh, feel about the story. I at least yeah. try to project an objective uh, kind of approach to it. Um, there are some stories that I definitely think there is the potential for something to be paranormal. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that where, where my head goes with any story that you know, has the potential to be paranormal is that even if it's not paranormal, even if, even if we were able to deduce that it was not paranormal, the fact that we don't have an answer to something, that alone is very intriguing to me. I like that there are things in this world that in, in the human experience that cannot be simply put into a box. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of those things have to do with people going missing and people passing away. Uh, but I, I've always been so fascinated with things that people don't have answers for. Um, and it's in part why uh, I didn't really know this about myself at the time. But when I was in college, uh, I actually studied philosophy. Um, mm -hmm. And it was in large part because in one of my earliest philosophy courses I took in college, we just did thought experiments. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with, with yeah. that in philosophy. 
the gist is your professor or whoever will present you with you know, a situation, a hypothetical situation that does, it doesn't matter if it's true or not. They just present you with this kind of this situation and it's designed to kind of split the class down the middle to get you to get half the class or half the group of people to feel really adamantly that, oh, well, here's here's the reason why X, Y, Z is happening. And then the other half has a very valid or seemingly very valid counterpoint. And they feel very strongly that it's the opposite. Uh, a good example would be, um, so pretend you have a, a bow and arrow and you can shoot an arrow in any direction, okay, any straight down to the ground, doesn't matter, any direction, and it can just travel infinitely. And that's a, that's, a, that's a messy word in philosophy, but just for the sake of simplicity, infinitely in any one direction, okay? Eventually, that arrow will, will hit a wall, uh, a theoretical wall, that marks the end of existence. The very, it could be billions and trillions and unbelievably far distances away, but it's going to meet some sort of a stop. Okay, we're oversimplifying, but just put this in your head. There's a stopping point. Or you're going to fire this arrow in any direction, and it will just continue infinitely, going in any direction. And so the idea is it's to get the class to make a, de a decision. Does the arrow hit a wall at some unbelievably far point somewhere out in the universe, or is there a stop? And each one, each answer, it, it, it presents new problems. If you say that, oh, well, you know, the universe is infinite, and so if the arrow, if it continues in any one direction, or I should say the arrow will continue in any one direction infinitely, well, then you're opening up the, the string theory, string theorists that say, okay, well, in order for things to be infinite, in order for anything to be infinite, you need to assume that everything around that thing is infinite, that in order for me to exist as I am now, I exist in a time and a place in this room on this podcast with you. That is a version of me. A different version of me would be in the background, the wall is green. That's a different version of me because I am a product of my surroundings and I, and I exist in the world. I don't exist in a vacuum. And so to call anything infinite implies that every other thing that exists has been duplicated an infinite number of times and repeats infinitely. So if you say the arrow continues in any one direction, it means everything is infinite. And that's a whole bunch of problems. And then if you say, okay, there's a wall, well, then you have to ask yourself as a human being, this is how we do things, well, what's on the other side of the wall? It's not <laughs> darkness. It's not a void because those things exist and therefore it cannot be nothing. The word void, that is something. It exists. So we can't conceptualize nothingness. And so there's problems with that. And I used to love, so that's, that's one thought experiment. I used to love things like that. It made your mind go in loops. And, and, I, and I just love that. And so when I tell stories or when I, when I, when I research stories and when I discover stories that have that kind of what's going on here and no one has a good answer, I love telling those stories. I love it. And so I know you asked me really specifically how do I feel about the paranormal, and I gave you a really political answer because I didn't want to really <laughs> answer it directly. I want to keep there a little bit of mystique there, uh, but I'm totally intrigued, and I am a very open-minded skeptic. Okay, that was – you apologize. That was like one of the coolest answers I've ever gotten to a question on this show. <laughs> um, there you go but yeah no i mean i i remember we had similar when i was in in college i took uh i took a medieval philosophy course and we were reading through nice. um aquinas avicenna um, mechthild of magdeburg and all of these different people and the one that i think we spent the most time sitting on was avicenna's uh flying man theory and the awareness of the self and like you know if if a man you know does if you have a man and he's flying along and he's got you know, no arms. Is he aware that he is still, it, it's a, a lot to get into, but um, <laughs> yeah, it was the, the idea of like these thought experiences and philosophy. It was, it was one of those things where I sat there and I was like, this is so cool. 
I absolutely don't want to do any more of this in my life. <laughs> yeah. Way, yeah, it has that effect on a lot of people. It was way out there for me. <laughs> That's why I love this show. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, but um. Yeah, I mean, so I guess that really does answer that question. Um, did what, what did you end up going to school for? You said you were thinking about philosophy. So I actually, I did major in uh, philosophy. Yeah. I, I minored in English, if that's even something you, you say out loud. Yeah, I, so I did the same. Major and minor. Uh, and, you know, initially my, uh, my plan was to go to law school. And mm -hmm. the school I was going to, the University of Massachusetts uh, in Amherst, uh, so UMass Amherst, um, they didn't offer a pre-law program. And so basically what people did if they wanted to go to law school after college at UMass, they, they, would, uh, they would major in philosophy and, and English. And so that's what I was doing. Although truthfully, um, you know, by my junior year, I, I was not interested in law school, but I you know, maintained appearances, you know, want my family to think I'm on, I'm on, the, I'm on the right path. Uh, but actually I was thinking about enlisting the Navy at the time. So when you enlisted, did you did you enlist or did you go officer track? I enlisted. Uh, so uh, for those listening, uh, for the how, how many people are we up to in the chat? Uh, seven hundred and ten. Nice. So the <laughs> seven hundred and ten people listening. Um, so in the military, uh, if you have a college degree, if you graduated, and you have a college degree. When you join the military, you have the opportunity to become an officer. Uh, so there's two types of people in the military. There's officer and there's enlisted. Enlisted are people that either choose to enlist or don't have a college degree. And to, to really simplify this, you're kind of like the, the worker bees. Uh, and then the officers, I don't know, I don't know what the, the rank in, in bee hierarchy would be, but there's the people in charge of the worker bees, and those are the officers. And so the advantage to being an officer in the military, on top of having lots more control and power, and it's very prestigious, uh, you make a lot more money, um, well, I think that those, those are the primary advantages right there. Uh, but in the SEAL team, so I was a Navy SEAL for a little while, um, because it's so difficult to get a spot in the tryout, so they run five tryouts a year. They don't call them that. It's called Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL School, also known as BUDS. Um, they run five courses a year. It's a, it's a whole process just getting in the door to try out. But again, to simplify, there's five tryouts a year. There are a lot more seats in the course for enlisted people. There's like 100 some odd seats per class, probably more than that, maybe 150 for enlisted, but there's like five for officers. So, and, and to be clear, you don't just get to raise your hand and say, hey, I'm an officer, I'm gonna go try out to be a Navy SEAL. You have to have a uh, political, you have to have basically a congressperson literally vouch for you personally and you need to be a 4.0 student and you need to be you know the best athlete in the freaking world just to be considered to be one of those five officers in in, in, in in training and i was not any of those things so for me if i wanted to be a seal uh the only way and the most realistic way was going enlisted so i threw my college degree down and i enlisted in the navy like within a couple of weeks of graduating college much to my wow. my family's chagrin yeah i I tried to, I ended up getting medically separated, but I, uh, I joined the National Guard for four months when I was okay. 19. Yeah, and nice. uh, yeah, I ended up getting a separation, and I was like, but my family was not happy. Uh, 
but yeah, no, they uh, they do not like it when um, their infantrymen get diagnosed with uh, anxiety disorder right before basic training. Uh, <laughs> they no, were like, I imagine not. They were like, yeah, you can't do that. And I was like, well, can I do something else? And they went, no. It's <laughs> like, all right, well, okay, bye. I'll go to college, I guess. Um, so <laughs> that was there my that was my stint in the military. Um, so you went to college, though, huh? I did go to college, yes. I went to Penn what, State. What did you study? I got a degree in medieval studies and then minors in history, classics, religious studies, and English. Oh, smart guy. Right on, dude. <laughs> what about you, Roy? <laughs> These you are the only college? things I'm good at. Fair. Uh, yeah, I did go to college. I went to NYU, got a double major in film and journalism with a minor in psych. Nice. NYU. Right on. Cool. Nice. Yeah. Aiden's, Aiden's a smart cookie up there. I try, you know. Uh, yeah, but I mean, I, as far as it goes for me, like I very much look to what I studied in college as the one of the reasons that I'm able to do what I do now. Um, and then after college, I worked in marketing for a year, um, and I picked up a lot of the skills for search engine optimization and digital marketing and all that that kind of, I think, have lent themselves to us being able to grow from, you know, no, essentially nothing back in June up to where we are now, which has been an incredible journey, and I have been so insanely excited about it but you know a lot of it was a, a lot of the stuff people will ask me they'll you know comment on one of my tiktoks and they'll be like oh you know can you talk about this thing and then i go and do and they're like how do you know all this stuff and i'm like because i spent four years in college learning the research skills that allow me to go very quickly find the right place read it take the notes summarize it and make a 60 second video on it it's not like it's all just up here all the time <laughs> Like a lot yeah, of people no, are a lot of convinced that you, when you go to tell these stories, that it's just somehow you've memorized the whole thing over the course of your life. And in reality, it's like, no, I've just I just, yeah. Like I, 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 how, how many hours does it take you to, you know, write one of your videos from research to recording? Do you think? Uh, well, I, I have a pretty good idea. So if you take out just topic discovery, and you start with, okay, I have the, the topic or the, the three topics that I'm going to do in a video because I do the top threes and I also yeah. handle those. Um, I would say that generally speaking, it takes about eight hours to do uh, the research into a script. And to be clear, I write the script, and this is, I write a script almost to the word what I'm going to say. And then when it comes time for recording, because I've spent so much time writing it out, I actually can visualize the script in my head. Um, because I've literally written it out. And so I actually, you'll see me doing this a lot of the time, like turning my head and people are convinced I'm like looking and somehow like scanning my document and reading it. Yeah. But in fact, it's actually just like my tick when I talk. Um, <laughs> I don't have the script. I, I, I have it wow. nearby to reference. I shoot this in many shots. I do not oh, do a straight yeah. shot. Yeah. But um, no, I, I, I spend about eight hours writing, uh, so researching, writing it out. And it, I usually write about, uh, about eight pages to 10 pages of just single font, like or single line text every single time I do a story. Um, and that winds up being uh, about the length I need to put together about an 18 to 25 minute long story. That's so and then filming is like, you know, two, three hours. And then editing is another, I do like the initial wave cut, like, you know, kind of chopping out the nonsense and me being frustrated during the middle of the recording. And then I kick it to my editor. Uh, I just got a new editor. Uh, his name's Jeremy. Who's, he's incredible. He um, And he does about seven hours after that. So all in for me, for getting topic discovery, I'm probably spending maybe 10 to 
15 hours uh, any given day on a video. And then um, I'd say topic discovery takes longer than that. Yeah. I mean, like literally it's absurd how, I mean, I'm sure there's, you guys have been in the same position. Finding topics <laughs> is the hardest part. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's, it's more it, with a lot of these things. It's kind of some of the more obscure stuff we talk about, like on our Friday, like folklore episodes, which are Saturday now, but uh, some of the more obscure stuff is like, somebody will be like, Hey, can you talk about the Leshy, which is from um, Slavic folklore? And I'll be like, sure. And then I go to find it and I'm like, oh, okay, there's like, I got to read, you know, 15th century Polish document and I've got to make sure that that lines up with, you know, 18th century English document on Polish documents. Like it's, it's insane trying to just compile everything. And it, it really does make me feel happy that when I was in college, my professors put such an emphasis on like, go physically go to the library and find all the books you need and bring home a stack of 10 books. Like I, I miss those days. Anytime I go to make a video where I can just walk into Penn state's library and walk out with, you know, a million different books. Um, also, I just want to say it's very nice of you to end out all the nonsense before you send everything to Jeremy, because I just give Aiden the nonsense. Um, oh yeah, I'm too it, embarrassed. There's too much <laughs> just weird stuff happening on my end that I don't want anyone to see. Oh, it's you've seen so, enough weird stuff happen. Yeah, so I just <laughs> enough weird stuff. I just got over mono. So normally beforehand, I was there recording with him with my setup because you know, being a film guy, I like to set everything up and whatnot. So for the yeah. past month or so, he's been recording it all himself and then just sending it to me. So not only will there be just like moments of him either just going, "Oh my God, my nose," and scratching it for a solid 15 seconds. <laughs> Or, and him just like, you know, just very ag aggravated with himself. <laughs> but there are also yeah. moments where he'll yeah. be like, like he'll go on a five minute tangent unbroken and then he'll stop, realize that he forgot something and then just look at the camera and go, okay, Aiden, so I'm going to say this one thing that needs to go like in here. So like when you edit it, just do that or whatever. And then just immediately goes back into it. And I'm just like, I, it's hilarious to go through, but it's a lot more fun yeah. to do it when we're both in person because I can yeah. tell he's a yeah. lot less stressed. It's Aiden's like my therapy dog. Um, <laughs> just when, when we're there, because I can look at him and he's just like, it's okay. Yeah. Um, it's okay. It was funny my going through the last video, dog, seeing how much you look awful. off screen at me compared to on the other videos when you're just like in the zone and then you just like get yeah. all frustrated. <laughs> That's it's weird. It is like, do you have, do you have somebody there filming or do you do all the filming yourself? I film on my iPhone. I set it up, really? I hit record and I film for about three hours and I just sit there and film and then I airdrop it to my computer, chop it up and kick it to, to my editor. You film? Wow. Yeah. Did, it doesn't do mean I'm doing it right. It yeah. just means I'm doing. <laughs> no, do you do the audio from your iPhone? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I do. It, I'm just impressed. Pure iPhone. Pure iPhone. I'm impressed yeah. at how... I think people have How gotten well used to it. Out. I don't think if you actually listen closely to the videos, I, I I have used a microphone a couple times, and I just I don't like the way it sounds. I've got really mm -hmm. nice microphones. I I think that I'm just like kind of rooted in doing it a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, I probably do need to uh, become a big boy and get a camera uh, <laughs> and, and a microphone. Uh, but for now, I have basically all my videos on this phone. Damn. I mean, hey, if it ain't broke. If, if it works, kind of yeah, where I'm at. yeah, it's very yeah. military oriented of me too. Like if it works, you just do that. Yep. Yeah. That's because <laughs> I remember the first video I did, I did on, on my phone, but uh, I also have like an iPhone SE. Like I don't have one of the nice ones. Um, so, uh, 
but everybody was like, you know, oh, I can't hear you that well and everything. I'm like, I, I don't know what you want from me. So after our first video came out, which did really well, I mean, it's up to, it's got what, 30 some thousand views. Yep. Um, and we just kind of redid a newer updated version of it. Now that I've learned a lot more and done more research and everything, um, went and rewatched all of your videos 18 times. Um, but I, it's crazy to watch the, the change from what we were doing back then to what we're doing now. It's very crazy, but I, well, we also added so much other stuff, like in terms of content, you know, finding different things to talk about. Like one of the reasons that we started doing other forms of content was because we recognized that even though we have like the one a week for the lore videos, it wasn't really putting to use a lot of his just knowledge of history term in terms of his uh, major in college. And I will go back to about like 15 minutes ago when Aiden was saying like, you know, it, it takes me a lot of takes and I like have to do a lot of research. To be fair, especially when it comes to history, there's a lot of stuff that he can just drop. And that's from even before college because he would just get into debates and rants with like all of our friends about different things because he just loved researching even from like middle school. So when he says that he has to do a lot of research for certain things, it's true. But there are definitely some topics where he can just unload information in in just nice. a very short period of time so i got to give he's, him some credit there me. i am you know i gotta butter you up somehow it's fine <laughs> gotta make sure i get to keep my job you know <laughs> there you go it's it's the drunk history is the most fun the, you know sitting there and having a couple of whiskeys and talking about vikings um yep. which is you know always always a good time but uh yeah, so I think I want to. I, I would love to talk about some of the military stuff um, without getting into current recent events because that's, you know, not great. Um, but you know, are you comfortable with that? We'll talk yeah, about. Yeah, right, yeah. I'll, I'll so, talk about whatever I what I'm, what I'm able to talk about. Sure. Yeah. So feel yeah, I'm way. sure that I'm sure you got stuff that you know, Uncle Sam says you're not allowed to talk about. And I won't, I won't yeah. push you on that. But uh, I mean to to start with it, I. I think every, a lot of people have probably seen your video on how you became a Navy SEAL and you know, what you did in the SEAL teams and your, mm-hmm. your near-death experience, which sounded horrifying. Uh, I hope I never have to go through anything remotely like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, what was – I? what I'm curious, I guess, about is were you like this when you were in the military? Like, were you guys sitting around having a beer and you were like, oh, well, you know, have you guys ever heard about this crazy thing that happened and then go off on it? Like, was that – were you the, the storyteller of the troop? <laughs> So um, to a degree, yeah, I was. Um, for, for context, I, my, um, so my, my father is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. Um, my sister is as well. She's a two-time Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. My, my mother's a professional writer. My other sister is a PhD candidate working in a Harvard lab. So like, that's not a flex. It's just like I grew up in a household full of incredibly brilliant people. Um, mm-hmm. And while I consider myself to be you know, a smart person, um, I think realistically, <laughs> I was like the on the lower end of the uh, the smart totem pole there. Um, but as a result, I mean, I grew up around people that were just masterful storytellers. I mean, that's literally how we communicated. I, I I don't think I realized growing up that it's not normal for like family members to send these lengthy like prose emails just to tell each other like what they're doing <laughs> next week. Um, but that, that was it. I just, I learned, I learned, I think listening to my family and, and being around people that, you know, were just incredibly brilliant. Um, and so going into the military, uh, I tended to be very, uh, verbose. Anytime I spoke about anything, I, I, I couldn't help. 
like even now you've asked me, was I the storyteller in my troupe? And I've given you about five minutes of lead up to the answer. Um, because that's just, that's how my whole, my, my family functioned. And so when I went into the military, uh, you know, there's not really that many opportunities to, to tell some cool stories and stuff in the middle of training sometimes, but you're just kind of stressed out, you know, training to become a SEAL takes quite a while, uh, both before you join and during. Um, but then once you actually get into a SEAL team, one of the things that they make the new guys do, um, is there's, there's lots of opportunities for, um, briefs to be given about all things, things that are relevant, things that are irrelevant, things that are important, mostly things that are not important. And it's kind of like each team, which is broken into smaller parts of things called platoons, which are, you know, 24, 25 man platoons, which is a, it's a very, it's a military thing. Uh, we would all be kind of, uh, as a platoon, we'd be told to, you know, we need to present this topic or, or like our platoon is responsible for giving this presentation to someone in this government institution or to this team or, you know, when you're in country, you know, or when you're overseas in another country, you need to brief up your counterparts, you need to brief the people you're working with. There's just lots and lots of opportunity for these like, public speaking, if you will. Um, and because there's just so few people on any given team, it's like literally the new guys are giving these very high level presentations to like dignitaries and military leaders literally around the world. And, and it's, it's kind of a known thing that as soon as you get to a team, they throw you in the fire. And the first thing you're doing <laughs> is, is presenting these like really complicated presentations to the commanding officer of the team. And everybody's kind of in on it. You know, they're kind of like mm -hmm. the CEO, the commanding officer. They totally know that you're nervous about doing it. Right. Uh, and, and like everyone's kind of hazing you in the background. But, um, I used to relish the opportunity to, to give these presentations, not because I was a goody two shoes, but I just really enjoyed speaking. I've always enjoyed speaking. Like, again, I'm giving you this super lengthy answer because I just like to talk. That's who I am. And so uh, I think that I, in the military, I, I used to love being the guy that would do those presentations. It didn't matter what it was. Um, I used to like when there was some concept that needed explaining, whatever it was, some tactic or anything in the team. I used to love like digesting whatever it was only so I could explain it better. There's just, I get, I get a thrill out of explaining things to people. Uh, and then in, in addition to that, I would say uh, like the thought experiment I gave at the beginning about the arrow being fired. I've probably used that in conversation dozens of times, both in country, uh, overseas, in, sta in the States to my platoon. I used to love just doing thought experiments with people because it's so random. Like in a SEAL team, you, you don't have a lot of people uh, you know, talking about philosophy, although there's some very intelligent people for sure uh, in the teams that do do all sorts of crazy stuff. But I used to love getting these like hardened, like huge jacked Navy SEALs to like talk about like existentialism and, you know, the, the meaning of nothingness and infinity. Uh, and so my nickname actually in the teams briefly, I, I, I don't think it really stuck, but it was Shakespeare. Uh, because at one point I was literally quoting Shakespeare to make a point and, and I couldn't quote it now. <laughs> that in conjunction with always looking for opportunities to speak, that that became my nickname. So I was Shakespeare. Oh, but I love that. That's like, that's a pretty good, as far as the military nicknames I've heard, that's a good one. That's a good one to have. Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> I, I've heard worse. <laughs> oh, so I, yeah, so you did, uh, you did a video about um, this too, but uh, the, the Kandahar Giant story. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what your thoughts are because it, it seems like a lot of soldiers and marines have kind of it seems like everybody's heard the story um you know but I, I, how likely is there anything about the story that like comes across as glaringly false or do you think it's 
in something you can't corroborate or like what what do you think of the whole story i guess um so i don't have i haven't reviewed the kandahar giant story in a while um so i don't like right off 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 the top of my head have like all the details but for the sake of the audience to to make sure everybody's on the same page so there's this story uh in kandahar which is in afghanistan i forget what part of afghanistan that is where this uh platoon of army special forces guys uh those are the green berets they encountered this giant the so-called kandahar giant um when they were up in the mountains and they they went into this cave uh in, in afghanistan there's lots of mountains there's lots of caves that's a big part of afghanistan and um they encounter this enormous person that has a spear and they throw the spear out and it hits one guy and kills him and then the you know the 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 SF team the special forces team they they engage this this giant and uh apparently after the shooting had stopped the uh the giant had been killed and was transported off the mountain and kind of disappeared into the darkness of of you know the government space you know the idea of being it's like this paranormal entity that you know the government needs to put a handle on um now i covered the story uh not because i'm sitting here thinking there is a 100% chance the kandahar giant is real um i covered it because there is an alarming number of people that i have spoken to that i've read about that claim this is true um and i would also say too that having been in afghanistan i've only been the one time but having been in afghanistan uh it is it's another it's it really feels like another world coming from america and walking around the mountains in afghanistan i mean it looks like you're on, you're on another planet granted i've not troped around lots of other mountain ranges in the world but right. it's it's like these jagged rocky cliffs and there really are literally these 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 huge caves that are just kind of tucked away up in these mountains and it's eerie it's genuinely eerie and i i got to say if there was ever a place in the world where you know giants uh could exist it, it would it would be afghanistan purely because it just feels like there are parts of that country that that no one has been before mm-hmm. uh, i mean it's it's literally it's shockingly beautiful i remember when i landed in afghanistan we flew first of all when you land in a war zone again my my one combat deployment you have to land like super aggressively like you don't just <laughs> coast into the the base it's like you know you're flying in in the middle of the night and you know the lights inside of the cabin go dark and you know they're like stay away from the windows you know as if that's going to save you if an rpg hits your yeah. plane uh and then it's like a super super steep descent into the base in afghanistan and uh i remember when we landed uh i got out and it, it was it was winter time it was in uh end of october early november of 2013 and i just like remember looking out and i'm in this little outstation in southeastern afghanistan uh and for those that have been to afghanistan that are listening it's uh fob uh shank fob shank um and everywhere you looked 360 degrees there are just these unbelievable mountains off in the distance i mean beautiful like truly shockingly beautiful um and i remember thinking like it's so weird that this is a war zone um the only way you could actually tell it was a war zone beyond the fact that you're literally standing in a military outpost is as you looked across the sky you would see the big blimps that are like these big gray blimps like the goodyear blimp you know mm-hmm. um and they were tethered to the ground maybe a couple hundred feet off the ground and they kind of pocket they they were all over the place every direction you looked and they were surveillance blimps from from nato 
Um, and that, so basically anywhere you looked, if you saw a blimp, it meant that it was effectively an unsafe place for NATO troops to go. And everywhere you look, you know, behind it are mountains and in front of it are all these blimps. Um, so it was a very unsafe place. Uh, anyways, I, because, you know, Afghanistan, it, unless you've been there, it like, it, it, it felt like we were on another planet. Um, and so all that, I, I'm skeptical of the uh, the Kandahar giant story only because I feel like I've done enough research on it to where I, I feel like there should be something that makes it more clear that it happened. I also think that in virtue of the story being passed by lots of different people, right. it's like that telephone game in, in elementary school where by the end it doesn't make any sense. Um, but I do think there's there's it's very it's very possible that a special forces team, which is a very small group, maybe 20 or 30 people, that they encountered somebody in the mountains that was unusual maybe they were unusually large I and mean, that's certainly possible and you know they could have been a, you know a, a tribal and you know living off the grid and they're in some really intense tribe and you know a shootout could have could have happened mm -hmm. and you know it's kind of been mislabeled as this this whole kandahar giant thing right. um but i guess the the one caveat to that would be is then then why hasn't it been like officially debunked why are there still people talking about it um it doesn't mean it's true it means, like I said at the beginning of this episode, that nobody knows for sure, and right. therein lies the beauty of the story and why I covered it, is because there's this uncertainty, and I would say that, again, if there's ever a place in the world that could house giants, it, it would be Afghanistan. Very good. You should do interviews more often. Uh. <laughs> you're, good at, you're good at answering things on the fly. Like, goddamn, that was insightful. This is my job, you know? Yeah, true. Fair. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason you've done as well as you have. Yeah, the Socrates. is literally all I do all day long. Yeah, true. Um, I used to kind of keep things on the, the subject of special forces, actually. Uh, one of the things I found most interesting, obviously not coming from a military background, but um, was in the, the Dennis Martin case from 1969, right? I think so. I think um, so. One of, the, one of the things that makes that case so unusual is not necessarily Dennis Dennis Martin's disappearance is obviously very unusual in and of itself for those who uh, who don't know who don't remember Dennis Martin was I believe six years old they were in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park in Tennessee or Tennessee Kentucky I think it was Tennessee yeah and um, basically Garrett and some other kid Garrett no Dennis, I'm Dennis. Messing up. Garrett Bardsley um, and Dennis went missing while playing hide and seek with a bunch of other kids that were at the campsite his father basically had his eyes on him the whole time and then suddenly he was just gone and obviously very unusual but they did search and rescue and the National Park Service was out looking for him and uh, the, the part that sticks out to me is that the Green Beret involved they sent in a contingent of Green Berets US Army Special Forces to go and find Dennis and what has been postulated in a lot of uh, a lot of retellings of the story is that Dennis was not actually being looked for by the Green Berets and that the Green Berets were looking for something else that might have taken Dennis. So I guess from from a military standpoint, like what what do you see the likelihood of Army or Navy special forces being used for search and rescue in a U.S. National Park being like, does that seem like something that they would do from your experience? So I, I, I guess to to give some context, the the area where Dennis Martin went missing, if I'm not mistaken, and I, I really don't know this, I, I, I believe it's near an area 
where the Army Green Berets train out of, at least mm-hmm. at one point or another. At one point or another, they are out in that area, anyways. And even though this might seem a little bit odd, it's totally normal for like. I can't get into too many details here, but basically, if you happen to be in an area like the SEAL team, so so to give some some context, when we would train for a deployment, uh, we would travel all over the country and in some cases outside of the country and we would do these really intense training exercises but they'd be in places like walls mississippi which the reason i say it that way is it's like you know in the middle of nowhere mississippi and there's like really not much going on there and suddenly the seal teams roll into walls mississippi everybody (laughs) knows you're there there's literally no way to disguise that you're there not to mention there are these places that the seal teams go to all the time like different platoons are rotating in and out of Walls, Mississippi all the time. So suddenly when like a hundred extremely well-built and very similar looking men show up in Walls, Mississippi that all dress the same, go to the same Walmart, talk the same, kind of do the same things, everybody in town knows that one, you don't live here because we know who lives here. And two, uh, you know, we, we know that SEALs come here. I say that because if let's say in Walls, Mississippi, there was some missing person case where a kid went missing and it happened to be at a time when the entirety of an entire SEAL troop, which is, you know, 100 plus people, was in town, it wouldn't shock me if we were asked to be a part of that search because we just have the capability to go look for people. That's something that we're pretty good at doing. And so I I don't necessarily think the involvement of the Green Berets indicates, you know, something sinister taking place or even something paranormal or bizarre happening. I think it's more likely that they have been in the area and everybody in the town knew the Green Berets are here, training out of here. And so it makes a lot of sense that they might be asked to be a part of it. I also want to put this out as another story that's similar in a way. Um, there was this huge conspiracy. Uh, and if you, go- you can Google it for yourself. For anybody in the chat, feel free to Google this too. Uh, it's called Jade Helm. Oh, I Jade as in the color. Jade and Helm, like the helm of a helmet, I think it is. So Jade works. And it happened in, I want to say, 2014 or 15. It, it was definitely recent. Yeah, it happened. Well, because I was actually a part of it. Um, okay. So I, I was a part of Jade Helm. Jade Helm was this huge exercise in the United States where a, a number of different branches in the U.S. military kind of came together and did this, like, real-world exercise. You know, normally when we would train, we would, you know, we'd have, you know, maybe some support personnel and, you know, a couple people from the team that weren't SEALs were there. But for the most part, in-house training they, the, the U.S. military from time to time will run these huge exercises that, to be honest, there's an element of like showing off our capabilities um, to higher ups in government. Um, but Jade Helm was this this huge exercise that was going to take place all across the, the uh, East Coast of the United States. So South Carolina, North Carolina, uh, all the way down to Florida, um, Virginia, and uh, it was pretty much all special operations. So it's the SEALs, it's Navy SWIC, uh, it's the pararescue jumpers of the Air Force. I mean, basically it's the who's who of special operations is taking part of this practice. Um, and the way these work is, you know, everybody's kind of given their, their piece of the puzzle that it's almost like you're role playing. In fact, it literally is like you're role playing. It's like, it's like LARPing, but with the US military where um, there's like an objective, like, okay, we need to eradicate the this terrorist cell and in some made up country and the made up country is actually Florida. And so like literally there'll be a map of the United States and it'll be relabeled with these made up places 
and 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 the idea is it's like we're literally the entire process of learning uh the different objectives and actually tasking people to go be a part of this exercise um so imagine like the most in the best possible pretend military exercise ever uh with actual navy seals and special operators so we did that that's that's jade helm but it was it was announced in advance that there was going to be all these people in florida in south carolina north carolina all these special operations people and they were going to be running this exercise and so these bulletins that were sent out to uh the people in these towns to to be aware you know if you see people running around with you know an m4 rifle you know don't be alarmed those are just special operators those are just special operators well it got misconstrued really badly and people began to believe and i i can understand why they jumped to this conclusion but people began to believe that this was actually a government takeover that they had brought like the best possible soldiers from the military to like take over the southeast of the united states for reasons unknown but when these concerns were brought up the government did not do a good job quelling them and so we ran this exercise with people actively believing there was a government takeover and we were wearing we were wearing plain clothes a lot of the time and so i remember i was like in south carolina I have a, a rifle, but I'm wearing literally a plaid shirt and a backwards hat, and I'm like <laughs> hanging out in this tree, and I'd like pop out and like literally because it's an exercise. You're, this is how we did it. I would like draw my weapon up. It, it, they're blanks. There's nothing on them, and like stop people from coming down a road because we're running real exercises. But people didn't know it was fake, and so <laughs> I'm saying all this because I've been there and seen it when the military is like doing crazy stuff in mm -hmm. front of civilians that really don't know what's going on. And there's there's no follow up. It isn't like that person who I drew my gun on gets a a you know oh hey by the way that was made up. They probably will spend the rest of their lives believing there was some crazy operation happening in their backyard. Um, and anyhow, so the I don't even know why I brought that up, but the gist is this: the military does all sorts of stuff in the civilian world, whether it's helping people out because they happen to be in the area and they have the vehicles and the capabilities. Uh, and conversely, the military does some weird stuff around civilians and doesn't necessarily make it clear what they're doing. And it gives the impression that there's something sinister afoot. So all that's to say, I don't know if the Green Berets had much to do with the Dennis Martin. You know, mm -hmm. it certainly elevates the case that this kid goes missing and suddenly, you know, the Green Berets are a part of the search. But I, I would I would say that if I was I, I have researched this case, I, I don't even think I mentioned the Green Berets or if I did, it was kind of an afterthought because it just seemed reminiscent of mm -hmm. us being in random parts around the country, too. All right. That's exactly the kind of answer we were looking for. <laughs> yeah, because that's one of the things that get, gets brought up the most about it. And uh, if you watch, for anybody who's seen the American Horror Stories episode of Feral, uh, they essentially say the same thing They're, uh, that is, is brought up among the conspiracy theories regarding this, is that, oh my God, what is stuck under my foot? I... Uh, you know, they say, oh, well, they brought in the, you know, a couple of National Guard or Army Ranger contingents to help deal with whatever was going on. And it's meant to imply that there's something more than just a missing persons case going on. Um, I always thought the Green Beret involvement was weird, but I also didn't know about, you know, that the Green Berets were just happen to be nearby. That certainly changes things a little bit. Yeah. But it's still a very interesting case. And it, I, I do think that it's an interesting point. I mean, yeah. it isn't like that happens a lot. I'm just saying that it's more common than people realize that the military will just randomly help out around town if they're in yeah. town. If they're there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
I'm currently at a loss for words. I completely lost my train of thought. This, yeah, by the way, I just got a warning that this thing's going to shut down in 10 minutes. I'm putting that out there in case yeah, you guys need to recycle I this. I think I handled that. I, I have no idea. I'm pointing yeah. it out so just, just so that it's known. Yeah, I went ahead and, um, and fixed it. So if it does end in 10 minutes, we'll pull it right back up. But There you go. Um, you know, that was... Uh, Aiden, we're now signed up for Google Workspace. Awesome. Um, I'm so excited. Free, Free for 14 days. What do you know? Um, love it when that happens. As long as it, it works right now. When you're, when you're starting a new a new small business, how all the little charges add up like that. It's absolutely insane. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, oh, uh, that would be something to talk about then, too. Um, so you started on TikTok. Yep. What made you decide to switch over to YouTube full time? Um, I mean, uh, so... To be clear, I used to I used to put a lot of content out on uh, Instagram, LinkedIn. Uh, this is like in 2017, 2018. Um, I was I was running a charity that helped veterans get jobs, and I was looking for some support, you know, uh, charitable support. And I was posting content on the internet um, that were stories, but largely about the military and really about my own personal experience. Um, one, because it was cool to be like, look how cool I am. And two, uh, because uh, there was, uh, you know, there's some sensitivities around telling other people's stories. And so I kind of got on this, this role where I was telling my own stories, nothing classified, but, you know, my own stories. And it was like, you know, generating some buzz. I had, you know, I think 40,000 followers on Instagram and, and people were like engaged with these posts and, and people were donating money to the charity because they're like, wow, you know. If, if John is this like really amazing Navy SEAL, then boy, I'd love to be connected to other Navy SEALs that are getting out of the military, who John has access to through this, this charity. And I want to give money because I want to support these guys. Anyways, um, I was posting content about my SEAL experience is the, is the point I'm making. And I got a lot of flack from the SEAL community, my, my former teammates, for kind of like grandstanding, you know, like... Mm -hmm. It's despite the fact that if you Google Navy SEAL, there's literally books and movies and yeah. TV shows. Despite that, the vast, vast majority of Navy SEALs talk nothing about their experience, like the vast majority. Mm -hmm. um, and I am I am definitely part of the minority that has spoken about my experience, definitely at times to a fault. Um, but I, I think I recognize that I was I well, I was told uh, very aggressively by people uh, that I was, you know, it was too much, you know, you're, you're, you're coming off kind of like, it's all about you. Uh, and don't forget people, lots of people have died wearing this uniform. It's not about you. You should not be selling the trident. The trident is what you wear in your mm -hmm. uniform. Um, it's, it's a bad look. And I lost a lot of friends uh, in the teams from it. And it's, it's just a cultural thing. Um, I say all that because around the time TikTok kind of came online, even though musically existed and you know, people were on TikTok. I think that it really kicked up a notch, like at the end of 2019, early yeah. 2020. And then obviously with the pandemic, it, it spiked TikTok like mad. I was looking for a new platform to start new content on. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I felt like I'd saturated Instagram and LinkedIn and other places with my SEAL content. And I kind of wanted to stop doing that. And I saw TikTok and I saw it as this great opportunity to like post new stuff on there to try new content because even though I was doing content largely to generate buzz, to support the charity I was working with, I really started to enjoy the idea of creating content professionally with no idea how that looked. I just liked the idea of it. Yeah. Um, and so the first, you know, 
definitely a number of videos were purely still military intent. They were, you know, different a little bit, but they were still very much in the same vein. It's like I hadn't really found my identity outside of being a military guy. So it's like I did TikTok and I thought I was, you know, re reinventing myself by telling slightly different SEAL stories that were more like generic and more mm -hmm. veteran focused vice my specific SEAL focus. Um, but it just, it just, it didn't make me feel good. I felt mm -hmm. like people were upset with me still people being in the community, which it's, it's a long story, but it's, it's, it's totally right of them to feel this way. There's a, there's a history there. Um, and I just, I was getting kind of depressed about like the feedback I was getting. It was like really difficult mm -hmm. to take. Uh, cause these are people, these are not just my friends. These are like people I've literally, I mean, literally laid down behind walls and taken incoming rounds and like been in gunfights with these people like the level of closeness is difficult to even describe. Um, I, I would say it even transcends, it transcends family relationships to a degree. And these same people are like, you've betrayed the community. And, and, and that was just incredibly painful. And so here I am on TikTok trying to right the wrong, trying to do something else because I still like social media. Um, and I remember I, I had this document on my computer because I had all these brainstorming ideas on my computer. I'm sure you do the same thing. I had this running list of ideas and it was like, a million different ways to talk about being a veteran without saying I'm a SEAL. That was like column one. And then column two, I remember I had I had one word or I had two words. It just said unsolved mysteries. And I, I would always open this document up and I would like look at, well, what am I going to talk about today? And I would always look at unsolved mysteries because I personally thought they were fascinating for all the reasons I've mentioned before. About I love things that are unsolved and, and things that are you know unique and people don't have answers to. And I remember thinking like it's going to be so random if I post an unsolved mystery of any kind about anything on my TikTok or anywhere because it's such a departure from what I do online. And even though there are lots of people that feel like I, what I'm doing with the SEAL content and military content is bad, there's a lot of other people that follow my accounts for the military content. Mm -hmm. And so to like do this completely random thing, it was like suicide of my account. Was, yeah. That's how it felt. It was in this tough spot where destroy the following you know, for the right reason or continue the following for the wrong reasons. And so I remember I went to this uh, indoor water park with my family. I got, I got three little kids. I'm married, uh, 10 years strong. We go to this water park, and uh, I finally just was like, you know what? I, I want to do something completely different. I want to do an unsolved mystery. And I remember I stepped away from my wife and kids. They went down to the water park, you know, and I went into my hotel room, a room in my hotel room. And I told the story of the Dyatlov Pass, which is, mm -hmm. in a nutshell, these nine hikers. It's been solved, which kind of ruins the mystery. Uh, but these nine hikers. I disagree. I disagree. <laughs> these people go missing in the Ural Mountains in the Soviet, in the old Soviet <laughs> Union in the fifties. Their campsite is discovered. It's in tatters. You know, there's indications that these people in the middle of the night jumped out of their tent in the middle of a blizzard and ran down the mountain, despite all the indicate all all the training says not to do that. And you know, their bodies were discovered. They've all been like mauled. People are missing eyes. Their clothes have been switched from person to person. They're radioactive. And the government, the Soviet government, I forget. Their, they have this this epic quote. Uh, this they close the case by saying uh, the the nine hikers. Uh, died as a result of an unknown compelling force, which is like the best, most ambiguous answer you could possibly <laughs> give. And it opened the door to so many different things, not to mention there was a, a police officer, a Soviet cop, that said, oh, yeah, I saw like lights hovering over that section of the mountain. And then he redacted his statement, you know, so lots of interest. And I, and I told this story on TikTok. 
Now, the first one I'd ever done, I, I literally posted it and felt disgusted with myself. You know, like, <laughs> here's suicide, and I posted it. And then I put the phone down because uh, I was going into the water park. I didn't need my phone. Uh, went down to the water park, and I spent a couple hours down there, and I came back. And there was literally like three, four views on this video. Like the fastest it's I've met to this to this day. Never not that been a fast. video that's ever grown that quickly. And I I was good at making videos on TikTok. This was the fastest. Um, and it was like holy cow! Like I don't know what this is, but I I'm personally totally invested in stories like this one because they fascinate me. It's completely different from the seal content. It's not military at all. And I just became really pumped about it and started going full send on just telling uh, I was doing three stories a day, every day for 30 days. And I gained a million followers on TikTok from less than maybe 200,000 or 100,000 in 30 days, just from like, I barely slept. All I did was just, you know, story, story, story. Mm -hmm. And then I transitioned to like one story a day, seven days a week on TikTok. And the following was growing, and, and honestly, TikToks, it, despite people saying that it's like for kids or that it's lame, I, there's lots of like, criticisms about it. Yeah. I think it's an incredible platform, um, and I think it's really cool to like have that quick ability to grow your fan base on TikTok. It's like the only place you can still do that. But I had grown the, the fan base to, to like six and a half million in um, end of May, so about four or five, six months of just constantly making content. Um, and I actually got banned on TikTok very briefly uh, for showing a knife on a live stream. I, I, I was showing my kit. Ironically, I was doing a Navy SEAL thing. I was showing my knife from my plate carrier on a live stream. I, I can't even remember, remember why, but it, it banned my account for about a week. And it was the first time I hadn't been on TikTok, you know, all day long, basically, mm -hmm. in a long time. And I was like, man... I guess I'll try something else in the interim. Uh, and I was like, I should learn about YouTube. I, I've been wanting to do YouTube just because it, it lends itself to storytelling, in my opinion, better than, or it lends itself to another way of telling stories. Long form stories, it, that's that's a, that's a key. You got to reel people in and give them more information, you know? And so uh, June 1 uh, of 2020, I just decided to take the same kind of blunt force approach that I took on TikTok. This is like literally the same week I've been mm -hmm. banned. I kind of just was like, okay, well, I've grown on TikTok. Now I'm going to grow on YouTube because I think that's a good idea. Um, and I started making, you know, five videos a week, which is, you know, exponentially more time consuming than yeah. like 21 videos on TikTok a yeah. week. Um, but I, I think too, I, I need to point out that a, a big impetus for going to YouTube is because there is a clear path to a career. Like mm -hmm. the, the way you make money on YouTube is very standardized and it's predictable yeah. and uh it's also just it's like it's the best in class in my opinion for non-sponsorship opportunities just pure yeah. ad revenue it's really well done on youtube and i figured you know i'll i'll do that and uh i've been very fortunate to to be able to continue to just do youtube and it's now my full-time job so here we are yeah so hell of a full-time job too and that that's the thing is like what before i actually started doing youtube um i i always had an idea of youtubers is like they spent a couple hours a day making a video and then went and had this random amount of exorbitant exorbitant amount of money that they just screwed around with and yeah now that we're doing it and i'm kind of doing it as a full-time job and he's doing it on top of his full-time job oh my god is this a lot of work like, yeah. You sit down and it is just so much work. 
Um, but it's fun. It's rewarding. You get to build a community. That's been one of my favorite aspects of this is, you know, the people who come back each podcast, uh, you know, cause we do this once a week and the people who come back each time and, you know, we have one person who keeps sending very disconcerting cosmic horror, uh, in our, in our chat, we have a bunch of people who just throw the word milk in there a million times. Um, yep. you know, there's been some stuff about arson, which I still don't totally understand. Uh, but we get to, people. it's a fun little community, fun, fun way to get together with people. Um, my, my last question before we go to super chats is, uh, what should be, do, do you have something you think people should be doing to the like button? <laughs> Man, that, you might've caught me off guard here. Uh, you know, it's funny the, so the like button thing, my favorite one that I've done. So for, I'm sure a lot of people who are listening probably know this thing, yeah. but so you know, on YouTube, creators will do, you know, hey, before we get started, go ahead and smash that like button. Yep. Um, and I actually, I saw a guy named Graham Steven. So he's an amazing YouTuber. Mm-hmm. He's got millions and millions of subs. So shout out to Graham Steven. Uh, he does like finance and, and real estate. I remember he had this shtick where he said like, some, it was it was way more downplayed than what I do with mm-hmm. the like button, but it was something to the effect of like push the like button off the the chair or something small like that. Right. And I watched a couple of his videos, and he periodically would throw in these kind of goofy ways to smash the like button to be different. And so I was like, oh, that's clever. And uh, we have a thing in my family. Uh, we have these things called the long joke, where you mm-hmm. tell these like inordinately long jokes that aren't that funny, and they become funny because they're so long yeah. and stupid. Oh, and yeah. so I began employing the long joke to the like button where it'd be like, you know, please, you know, uh, ask the like button if they need a ride to, this is like in, in my intro, you know, hey, Mr. Ball, you've got a video today. And also before we get started, uh, ask the like button if they want a ride to school when they say yes, you know, let them get in your car, but immediately roll, roll the windows up, start chain smoking cigarettes and blare techno. And then also drop them off a mile past their school. Also yeah. on the video, yeah, so like that one I did, uh, the, the, the chain smoking cigarettes in the car, it just, it's so stupid and it's nothing yeah. to do with smashing the like button. So that, that was my favorite one. Yeah. Those, those were probably one of my favorite things about your videos when I got started watching them. I was like, this is great. You get a new little joke every time. It's an awesome little <laughs> yeah. gimmick. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, all right. Well, we will transition to, uh, the part of the show that Aiden runs, which is, um, the, the super chats. Yes, so I'll give the little rundown real quick. Put on my glasses so I can actually read. Good call. Yeah, so uh, generally for everybody who's in the chat right now, just so you know, uh, this is the open question section where we will answer any questions that we can. Uh, Perfect. Uh, Super chats get priority. We try to answer all of those considering that there is about a little over 10 times the amount of people in here that we usually have. Can't promise that every super chat will be answered, but we will do our best to answer as many as possible. Uh, Also, if there's anything that's like, not really a question that we would want to answer. We'll probably skip that. So let's keep it, you know, relevant. Let's keep it interesting and let's keep it appropriate. Um, but yeah, so feel free to start asking questions. We'll answer the ones that we see and the ones we can get. Like I said, Super Chats get priority. So we will answer as many of those as we possibly can. Um, I will start off with my own personal question. Uh, John, so when you decided to enlist in the military, what was it specifically about the Navy and then the SEALs that drew you as opposed to any of the other branches? You know, there's two answers that you give. If you if, if you want to be a SEAL or if you became a SEAL, and I don't know if anybody will live up to this, but I will, I'll be honest. Um, there's, there's two answers you give about why you wanted to be a SEAL. And I think this extends to other uh, units within this, within special operations. 
And that is the, you know, I want to do this because I want to serve my country, because I'm a patriot, you know, the, the kind of the cliche tell everyone answer. And it doesn't mean it's not true. It's definitely true. You do need to be, you know, on some level patriotic and you need to have a willingness or a desire to want to serve. That's definitely true uh, if you end up joining the SEAL teams. But you can do that. You can you can serve your country and you can be patriotic by going through a much less extreme training program and still serve your country. You can become any number of different things in the military that don't require two years of getting your face kicked in that you have like a 5% chance of succeeding in. You know, so like it can't just be patriotism. It can't just be a willingness or desire to serve. So, but trust me, when you get asked, especially in training, you say, because I want to serve my country, I'm a patriot. The other reason is like the reason, and I, I tell people this when I talk to people that want to be SEALs. Um, and typically in, in, in conversation with me, like I'll say, well, why do you want to be a SEAL? And they're very quick to say, because I want to serve, et cetera. And I say, okay, fine. But what I want you to do tonight is like when you're at home in the shower, right? You're just thinking to yourself, like very clear thoughts in the shower. Be brutally honest with yourself. What is it about the SEAL teams that you actually like about it? You don't have to tell anyone. Just be honest with yourself because that's the reason you're going to cling on to when it gets hard, you're not going to cling on to patriotism. You're not going to cling on to a willingness to serve because it's just too freaking hard. It's too painful. It's too miserable to not have a real reason. Okay. So I'm very patriotic. I wanted to serve my country. And then my real reason is I screwed up a lot in my life. I had an opportunity or I should say I grew up in this family where everyone's so brilliant and they're like going on to be these incredibly successful people. And I was getting in trouble in school and I got, I went to college and got kicked out after a semester and I was like living in my mom's basement. And it dawned on me that I was like, I was destined for a life of mediocrity despite these incredible opportunities that I had. And despite the kind of upbringing I had, I was going to squander it. And so I had this massive chip on my shoulder to prove to my family, and really I'd say specifically my father, uh, that I was a lot more than my screw-ups. I, I wanted to be more than just mediocre. And the thing that drew me to the SEAL teams is it's this epic meritocracy. Forget politics, forget all of that. If you want to be a SEAL, it's very straightforward. Virtually anyone can apply, assuming you're a citizen, and it's just, can you suffer and get your face kicked in long enough to become a Navy SEAL? It's really simple. Are you tough enough to become a SEAL? And I love the idea of like cleansing myself of this mediocrity stink that had been my entire life. I loved the idea of not only serving my country, not only, you know, being patriotic, but joining a unit that would forever change people's opinions of me. I would no longer be John, the guy that had all the aptitude in the world, but screwed it up. He didn't do anything, you know? Instead, it's John the Navy SEAL. And forever, that would be my thing. And so it's definitely vain. It's definitely ego. But like, you're lying if you don't, uh, that's part of the reason you become Navy SEALs is because it's, it's unique, it's special, it's harder than. That's why we do, that's why we set high goals for ourselves because those are unique. Those are hard, not everyone can do them. And so um, that was ultimately it. I would say my shower room thought of why I wanted to be a SEAL was to stop stop sucking, stop publicly sucking and be something cool and show my family that I was not a screw up. That makes sense. Kind of proving to yourself that in a way, you know, if you can be a SEAL, you can essentially be anything. Yeah, that that that's a much more succinct answer. Yes. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, Aiden, were you looking at the chat at all and see anything that you were? Yeah, I'm just following it. Fair enough. Well, I mean, there's just a lot of super chats. I don't know. I can't see all of them. I don't know how 
Fair you enough. Scroll back. I don't know. Uh, how you, you can go into you, you can go into your video and go to slow mode. I don't know if you guys do that or not. If you go into like your content, so the sidebar, you don't have to do this. It's just very simple. If you go into your content, like on the left side of your your uh, your studio, and you click mm. content, and then the video, I, I'm assuming it's the top one, your top line video that's the live stream. Yeah. Go into the details, and then scroll down the page to show more. Click on show <laughs> more. Scroll down, and then it'll literally say slow chat. Click on slow chat wow. and then change the 60 to 200. We have one from uh, Susan Seedler for 499. Thank, Thank you. you very much, Susan. Uh, she said, and this question seems uh, somewhat, you know, already spoken for in a sense, but I guess it's a good opportunity sure. for you to kind of let people know what your, what your plans are in a sense. And she asks, uh, John, do you foresee yourself doing YouTube long term? Uh, you're a consummate storyteller and would greatly miss you. Well, thank you, Susan. Uh, I appreciate you. Uh, you know, honestly, I actually do think YouTube is going to be a long-term thing for me. I, I think that, uh, and I guess I'm just going to publicly say this, um, I think that maybe in the, the olden days of five, ten years ago, uh, people might view YouTube as like a, a stepping-off point to do something else. I think that a lot of people if, in that same mindset of the five to ten-year-old mindset of you use social media to, like, do something else that's definitely true and, and there are definitely opportunities where i could pursue things that are outside of youtube and i'm very lucky to have those opportunities um but i actually think that you know i i don't really know if there's a better medium for what i really enjoy doing and have found my calling doing um i love that with youtube it it's like i get to choose what i want to do that's 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 so incredibly awesome to have full, you know, creative control. I mean, I, in the military, it was like the opposite of that. And I actually grew, I, I learned about myself that I really hated having a boss. Um, you know, I had great bosses, but I couldn't stand it. And so YouTube, it's like, I, I love the freedom of it. I also think that the attention is on YouTube. It's not on, you know, TV. Uh, TV will raise your profile, you know, that's if, the, if that matters to you, but I don't think that's necessarily uh, more advantageous. I think from a long-term perspective, I think people are going to be coming to YouTube. Um, and so that's where I plan on staying, at least in the short to midterm, for sure. Nice. Uh, we got another one from Stephen Van for $5. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, Hi, he said, if you could solve only one of your unsolved mysteries, which one would it be and why? Wow, good question. Um... Well, there's one that I, I don't know if I would want to solve it because I think the reason I love it so much is because it's unsolved. Mm -hmm. um, and if you'll let me, I'll tell it in, in a 60-second version of the story. It's the Flannan Isle Lighthouse Mystery. And it, I think it actually might literally be my favorite story I've ever told. It's one of my mm -hmm. first stories i put on YouTube. It's just got the best ending ever. It's unfortunate that people passed, but you know, it, it's an incredible story. So there's this lighthouse off the coast of Scotland in in the 1800s. It was built, and it's this really important lighthouse, you know, relative to shipping lanes. And in 1900, a steamboat passed by. I think it was this. I forget what part of Scotland it is, but it passes by this lighthouse, and the steam steamboat recognizes that the the lighthouse is is out. The lighthouse is not working, and so the steamboat, who typically goes past this channel all the time. Uh, they go to port in, in mainland Scotland and they tell who's the powers that be that, you know, the lighthouse is out, you know, obviously that needs to be, you know, reignited, you know, so 
whoever it is that's in charge of this, who's in charge of the lighthouse keepers, decides they're going to send a, uh, a team out to check on these these lighthouse keepers. There's three lighthouse keepers that stay out there. They do rotations of like three three months at a time. Uh, and this is a very this is a difficult lighthouse to man. Bad weather, you know. It's it's only for the hardened you know lighthouse keepers. And they they vote out that this guy who's in charge of all the lighthouse guys, and then also this additional lighthouse keeper. So two people they go out to this lighthouse, and imagine like showing up to this 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 lighthouse is on top of this massive massive mound in the middle of the water. It's not really a mountain. It looks like a huge mound. And there's a beautiful picture of the Eileen Moore Lighthouse. It's called if you Google the Flannan Isle Lighthouse Mystery, you'll see it, where it's like this massive mound, and at the top is this little little lighthouse and there's this huge set of stairs that goes all the way down to this one dock on the water so totally isolated and so they go out to this dock they get off and the captain the guy in charge he stays in the boat but the other keeper he goes up to the lighthouse he gets in the dock and normally the keepers that are there there's a process or there's a procedure where they'll come down to the dock and they will you know give them an update and there's a well there's a welcoming party and you you always do the welcoming party and they didn't and so this 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 backup lighthouse keeper, not the captain, but the kind of the, the lower level guy, he starts going up these stairs. And from his perspective, because of the the mound shape, he can't see the lighthouse. So he's just going up these stairs, and he, he describes in in this really vivid detail this this growing sense of dread as he mounts these stairs. And he finally gets up close enough to see the actual lighthouse. This is made out of stone. It's this huge, beautiful lighthouse, and right outside of the main door to the main building of the lighthouse there's like a boxy building and then the spire that's next to it or whatever you call it um the door to that box there's you know handrails steel handrails that run alongside the path you know maybe 100 feet off of the building and so as he kind of crests the hill and he can see the lighthouse he sees one of the railings these iron railings or steel railings has been warped over it's been like bent out of out of the cement and folded down like something tremendously huge and smashed into it and then there's also this huge boulder that just you know they built the lighthouse around it that was right outside of the, the boxy building it had moved significantly like it looked like it had rolled almost down the hill you know 10 15 feet whatever it was and so that's what he sees he doesn't see any of these three lighthouse keepers and so, you know, immediately he's thinking, you know, what happened out here? You know, the, the steel's been bent, the rock's gone. He goes up to the door, and in classic movie settings, in, like, like a movie, the, the door is ajar. Hmm. Pushes the door open, he goes inside and, you know, yells out to the keepers, there's no one there. He looks into the kitchen, and on the table is uneaten food. And it looks relatively fresh. And there's, like, you know, perishable food on the counter. Um, he's calling out, there's no one there. He sees that there are these three uh, oil slickers, these amazing raincoats it's kind of like it's issued to you as a keeper you don't keep these things they stay at the lighthouse and anytime you would leave the, the lighthouse you would wear these slickers uh he sees two of them are gone there's one that's still on the hook and so he, that indicates you know someone's still in the building um and so he's, he's looking around he goes into the the main room there's no one there he goes up to the bedrooms all the beds are unmade and no one's in the beds and another thing that's uh, just culturally about these lighthouses is these guys were incredibly neat. They would always make their beds. And the idea was at any time someone could visit and you want it to look like they can stay there. So the beds were always made. So for the beds not to be made and no one to be there, it's just, it's setting the scene that something's wrong. And so uh, he comes back to the captain and says, you know, no one's up there. I looked all in, I yelled, no one's there. He tells him about the scene he sees. Um, you know, he went outside and yelled, didn't see anyone. Comes back down to the dock, tells the captain, they launched this investigation and I think they went back to the end and came back, but they eventually discovered this diary 
that was underneath one of the beds in the lighthouse. And this diary was kept by the main keeper of these three men that were supposed to be out there. And it was a, it was not a, not a diary. It was more of a journal. And they were they were required to write in it to keep everybody you know in check of what's going on. It was a a, di a record of what happened. And the entries are totally normal up until you know a couple of days before the lighthouse was seen out. And the entries become very bizarre. They go from being, you know, today we went down to the dock and everything was normal to uh, John, I think his name is John. John was crying today. You know, John was very upset. You know, he was laying on his bed lethargic and he was crying today. John being known as like this crusty, you know, Popeye, the toughest sailor that is, that's like crying, but there's no reason for it. And why is it being recorded in the journal? Then there was another entry like a day later, a full gap in a day where it was like, you know, the winds outside are the strongest I've ever seen in 20 years. That we Basically, they're indicating they're in this unbelievable storm. And then there's a couple other entries that also indicate that the crew are now all shaken up and they believe they're not going to survive this storm. These are all hardened lighthouse keepers. Years and years of experience between them. They're in the hardiest place. They've been chosen for this place because it's they're so well trained for it. And they're crying. They can't handle this storm. And so uh, the, the last entry in this journal is... Um, storm has ended, uh, sea is calm, God is over all. So this is like this kind of eerie three lines. I, I might be misquoting it, but it sounds like that. And so that's what they find. They find this journal, and so naturally, they go back to mainland, and they say, look, we figured it out. There was this horrible storm, and, you know, they must have gone outside, and, and they got swept away. Well, it would turn out when that news broke on mainland Scotland, the people that lived on the mainland could actually see this island. And it was just something that was they were very accustomed to looking at. And over the period of time where these journal entries were done and, and the, the, the few weeks leading up to their disappearance, the weather was more beautiful than it's ever been in years. There was no storm. Hmm. And so what were the entries about? There was never any storm over the lighthouse. Where did they go? No one knows. And so it's this unbelievable twist where what the hell happened out in that lighthouse for people to be crying and thinking yeah. there's, what, what are they talking about, the, the storm? So uh, I've always found that story to be fascinating, that it's like there wasn't a storm. So what happened to these guys? Where did they go? Some sort of um, some, like collective psychosis, maybe? Or... Right. Yeah, yeah. So perhaps. So I, I guess it doesn't really answer the question. I, I don't really want to know. I kind of love this <laughs> amazing un un uh, uh, unsolved mystery. But I guess it would be cool to know what actually happened. And I'm sure it's incredibly mundane and would actually ruin the story. But there you go. It might. There you go. But still, it's interesting. Uh, I did find a way that we can see all the chats even from the beginning, Aiden. Perfect. Yeah, so we're going to head back a little bit. We only got like 15 minutes, but I'm going to try and get through as many of these as I can. All right, so uh, first one down here from Cannonballer2020 for $20. Thank you very much. Uh, she says, Mr. Ballin, you are amazing. Love your content. My 22-year-old son is a huge fan as well. Right on. Thank you. you. Uh, 10 me 10 for $10. Y'all breaking up the milk chain, bring us the windy milk. We crave liquid bones. Yeah, now it's I told a bit you, more like I our told podcast. you, I told you there, there's a small but loyal following. <laughs> We're in the milk cult. Uh, FBeast275 for 199 said, uh, Ballin, can we get a like button joke? We got there, we got there. Um, yeah. 10ME10 again for five dollars. Windy milk, liquid bones, milk masters give us what we crave with three milk emojis. <laughs> like, I don't even think we know exactly where it started. 
Like it just kind of no. happened one day where people they were just spamming milk in the chat, and we we literally audibly said in the middle of the podcast because I think we I think it was either when Wendigoon was on. I think it was when we were with Wendigoon. Yeah. Yeah, and I remember we were looking down and we were like, "What is this? Like, where did this come from?" And we I still have yet to get an answer. I hope we never do. That's yeah. a, that's a mystery I don't want solved. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Uh, Miss Mentats for British Pounds four forty nine says. Does anyone know the way to Bell's Canyon? I asked Matt, but he seemed a little <laughs> evasive. Are you guys familiar with the Bell's Canyon joke? No, I don't think I am. So, so there's a. I did an episode. Um, there was this guy who wrote this incredible Reddit firsthand account um, on. I think it was uh, Let's Not Meet. So, for those mm-hmm. who are uninitiated, um, basically people on Reddit will post their stories of these like totally bizarre and strange and oftentimes like kind of hazardous and dangerous interactions with strangers. And then at the end of it, you kind of cap it off by saying to the person who, you know, followed me in the parking lot last week, let's not meet. Right. So that's, that's, that's how it works on let's not meet. These incredible stories are written. Who knows what's true? Who knows what's not? But I found one that was just, it, it really piqued my interest because it just did not seem like something you would exaggerate because it's so weird and it wouldn't like get people's attention. It was like, it, it, this would be a, it wouldn't get you much if you made it up you know the, the, you're not going to get many clicks on this it's just too weird uh and it was this guy this the stockbroker who i'm in the mid 2010s he he was a big outdoorsman and he went out to this forest out in washington state and he's a guy that did lots of solo camping uh, i might be getting all the details wrong here whether it was washington or not but so he goes solo camping and uh he he's literally off the grid he's not on a trail but he's again real you know, he knows what he's doing out there. And in the middle of the night, he sees there's this person kind of walking around his campsite. And, uh, you know, he, he obviously becomes aware, come, comes out and you're in the middle of nowhere. What are you doing over here? You know, and uh, he tried to interact with this person who I think they vanished. And then he goes back in his tent and he's like, OK, you know, it's weird. There's a chance someone could just be camping out here, too. But over the course of several days, this 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 fan, this phantom person was kind of lingering near his campsite. And this person eventually works up the, the confidence to actually come up to him while he's in his tent in the middle of the night. And the only thing he says to the stockbroker is, do you know how to get to Bell's Canyon? And there's, there's, there's no context, there's nothing. And so like five, six, seven times, like this guy, he jumps out of his tent and he's, he's, you know, he's a tattoo, right? He's getting ready to confront this guy and, and the guy takes off. And so eventually the stockbroker decides, I, this is too weird, I gotta leave. And so he would like run, it was several days into the woods. So it was gonna take him two days to get out. And so he's like running and like it finally gets dark. He sets his camp up and all night he's like holding his knife in his tent. And then he'd hear like the, the, the sticks and the leaves as this guy comes closer and closer. And then it'd be like silence. And he's like looking through the nylon of his tent and he'd suddenly hear, do you know how to get to Bell's Canyon? And then he'd pack up his shit and he'd start running again as fast as he could. And so like the whole story, really all that happens is some lunatic out in the woods kept asking this guy if he knew how to get to Bell's Canyon. And that's really the entire story. And so the way he wrote it, it wasn't like, this guy clearly wasn't trying to generate views. It was like, yeah, the, the weirdest thing happened. You know, out in the woods, this guy kept asking where Bell's Canyon was. And so I told the story and I, I changed the voice every time I did, mm-hmm. do you know how to get to Bell's Canyon? To this kind of dark, demonic, yeah. but kind of comic <laughs> voice. And so it, it had a, it had a, but the whole vibe of the episode is goofy, like, right. you know what, to get to Bell's Canyon. And so it's become a thing, much like your, your milk. Uh, like our milk on thing, your yeah. chat. Yeah. That's um, great. I love that. 
I just like that. imagining it from the Bell's Canyon guy's perspective of just like, I'm going to go out in the woods this weekend and freak this <laughs> some dude out. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You can go ruin someone's nice camping trip. Yeah. <laughs> for no good reason. Uh, all right. From uh, Oliver Ohm, we have for $9.99, uh, stop bullying the like button, please. <laughs> no way. Uh, no. No way. <laughs> no way. Sorry. Uh, let's see. From Rachel Williams for four ninety nine, she says, I'm here for the strange, dark, and mysterious. Uh, aren't aren't right we all? It's true. Oh, all thank here. you. Uh, from the Ye Twin for ten dollars, uh, Johnny B. The only bedtime stories I've listened to for the past four years, few years. Uh, this is nice. one thing that gets me. That are we have people say the same thing with our story time videos. Yeah. Why do you listen to this stuff before you go to sleep? Yeah, there's What's no way it's relaxing enough for that. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, thank you, but why? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I actually, truthfully, I used to. I used to listen to the channel. Uh, dark five are you familiar with this channel they've kind of gone dormant so i don't i don't think they'd be much promoted now but it wasn't even a narrator it was like uh he just he or she or whoever it was would put together these really really simple almost like slideshows and they were always mm -hmm. a top five um hence the name dark five he, he did mm -hmm. dark kind of top fives but they did such an amazing job of compiling stuff that nobody else was really talking about on the internet like they'd find images of space that were, you know, controversial in some way, but they'd have really cool but very short text that would pop up on screen that would kind of explain the the, the dark nature of this photo. And I mean, they got insane amounts of views. They kind of stopped mm -hmm. posting, but yeah. uh, all of it is distressing. All of it is about <laughs> you know things that are not like, oh boy, what a, what a great bedtime story. Yeah. But I found myself always watching you know Dark Five, which there's no narration, but there's a there's a sound to it, like kind of mm -hmm. dark eerie sound. Like oh that's great, I'm gonna doze off to sleep to hearing about like the latest conspiracy theory about killers in the woods. So. It's just... Oh, so I'm like I watch How I Met Your Mother when I go to sleep because it's <laughs> yeah nothing's gonna pop out and scare me. <laughs> All right, we've got uh, Miss Mentats again for four forty nine. Could you please ask John if he knows the way to Bell's Canyon? So okay, we got there. We got there. Uh, Cannonballer twenty twenty for uh, twenty dollars uh, says Mr. Baller, thank you for your service. My cousin is in the Navy, a fighter pilot, and flew as a Blue Angel for four years. Jeez, right on! Wow, crazy. your cousin is cool. Blue Angels, that's crazy. I, I have seen them a couple of times, like because they flew past Philly uh, a little while nice. back, and ooh, it, it makes me nervous just watching like how close together they are. It's I know it's wild. It's a lot of skill, um, man. My buddy's in the yeah, Marines so, as a fighter pilot right now, and geez. oh, I don't know who the hell let him have a license. <laughs> <laughs> See, uh, Rotting Doll Thirteen for five dollars says, "I just went to the like button's house, stole its microwave plate, and put put holes in its toothpaste tube." That is <laughs> really specific. I love it. Nice it's a good job, one. Dude. I'm gonna be very upset. Um, Ajax the Juggalo. Uh, all right, that's a name for five Canadian dollars. Says Mr. Bolin is legendary. Thank well, that you. was a given. Not sure. Not sure how you feel about having juggalos in your audience. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> teach their own. Uh, Samantha Anderson sent a five-pound super sticker, which appears to be a hippopotamus running very fast. Nice. Hippos are crazy animals. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> yeah, oh they are. God. Uh, 
The Yi Twenty One says uh, for ten dollars. Thank you very much, uh, Johnny Ballin. Will you adopt me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I got three kids of my own already. Yeah, I was gonna so say that's full up on kids. There was one that was asking for adoption with the uh, the caveat that says they make really good quesadillas. So I don't know if that's gonna change uh, your answer for anybody. That might, that might that might tilt them in my favor. Uh, we'll yeah. see. <laughs> uh, Patrick Wade says for ten dollars. Uh, thanks for the quality entertainment, John. So you are right on. We got some fans, man. Um, yeah, very so, lucky. Uh, Brock Smith for five dollars says, "Giving the like button some love." Well, I mean that's. Not quite no, I feel about that. what we wanted. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How dare you treat that like button with respect? Can't be nice. Crystal Canber says uh, for five dollars. Thank you. Uh, drop a ghost if you wish. Ballin would bless us with live stories. I guess like live, like like TikTok lives. I think, like, yeah, I, I, I will actually on that. I, I I've given some consideration to to doing live stories. I used to do that on TikTok. Mm-hmm. I used to at night. I would like. I wouldn't really announce which stories I was doing, um, but I just I get a thrill as you can tell uh, of of just kind of throwing them out there. Uh, if I told like five just on this interview, I just yeah. doing them live is is is. I think there's more passion to them, and it's it's also it's. I like doing that stuff, so I I might do live stories at some point. I I have not so far. So yeah, you you do it well. I mean, it doesn't seem like you're stuttering over yourself or anything. It's actually very impressive. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, uh, let's see what else we have. Um, so 10ME10 for US $5. <laughs> How many takes did Obfuscated take in the last video? That was far too much happiness for only one take. All right, you got you to gotta oh give some God. context to that. Well, I'll give All a right, context so, to it. Yeah. Because in the beginning, sorry, the beginning of the video, there was a point where I think he tried to say Obfuscated about five times, and he had it like 90 to 95% of the way. But he just, he kept correct, like, he could have let it pass. He could have let it slide, but that's just not who he is. And he gave up on it initially in the beginning of the video. And then when we I got around towards the end, then. yeah, it was towards the end when you finally said it. And then it just, you, you, that joy of realizing right. that you got it. I had to leave that in there. It was too you, good. You should, you should do a blooper version of me just saying, obfuscate. And then once you once you try to say it a couple of times, it, it loses its meaning, and then it becomes harder to yeah, say. Yeah, exactly. It's just the, the word best. I can't say on camera if I think about it is the word probably. I always <laughs> I really? just, like, blur it together. Yeah, and so like literally, as I'm as I'm speaking, I'll get to the word probably, and I'll become aware that I've said the word mm. probably, and then I'll think, well, maybe I should redo that part because it probably didn't sound right, and then it begins it turns into probably. And then it just kind of blurs into a nondescript word, and then I oh need to find God. an alternate word to describe what is probably. Yeah, that's see it, coming from coming from Philly with the accent. We've got probably. Probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah see that? That's yeah. easy. I know. I, there's yeah. there's simply not a. It's you're just missing a syllable down here. <laughs> there's a lot of that in the Philly dialect yeah. for sure. Yeah, uh, Diane Yale. That's my grandmother. Um, for 1999, just says. Nothing. She's literally your grandmother is on here. Yeah. Nice. Well, shout out to to Diane. Right on. This is the problem. This is the problem. (laughs) Is that sometimes people say things, and I'm like, ah. My grandmother's on here. Yeah. Thankfully, my grandmother is a very cool woman. I I love her. Yeah. Right on. 
Uh, Aries Dean for four ninety nine says, "Can you talk about the seven children off by the United States military in Afghanistan? Are those the heroes we admire so much?" Just wondering. I'm gonna take this one, Aries, uh, because not the place, not the time. Um, if you want Actually, to, be you know, upset, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll address it. That's fine. You'll address it. All right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I, I think that uh, obviously, the so that that was just unbelievably horrible uh, i read the new york times article about uh the, the the seven children and i think there was actually three adults as well yeah. that were that were killed totally i think that people. you know first of all i think it's completely reasonable that that people would would want to talk about that it seems like yeah. uh, even in this episode alone i think the only things i've said about the military effectively are how great it is and how patriotic it is and you know how amazing it is that i was a seal and all that but I mean, you have to know that um, even though I don't really get into politics at all, um, I'm I and many other military service members are actually far more uh, uh, read into what's going on in the world. Not not like we have special sources by any stretch, but that we're actually much more aware of things like that because it actually has a direct impact, especially on the SEAL teams, like it or not because that changes the way we do business overseas. And so things like that are horrible. They are horrible because human loss of life is, is so devastating. Children, I have three kids. The idea of losing all of my kids, is it brings me to tears just thinking about it. And so it's easy to say, well, then we should look at the entire military as like this, that they are collectively responsible for the screw up. It's easy to do that, but that's not the way the world works. And so I think that you need to approach subjects like that with a little bit of reverence for the people that are in uniform because they're just as affected by the tragedy as everybody else. I read that story and I was disgusted and I still am. And I think it's absurd that we've spent trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. And that's probably not actually correct, but lots of money on being good at, at occupying countries and doing things militarily. The idea that we could accidentally destroy an entire family is unfathomable. It's unforgivable. And so like, that's how I feel. And I absolutely served in the, in the military and I've been overseas. I've been in combat. It doesn't mean I literally agree with every single thing the military has ever done. Uh, if anything, it's, it just puts us in a strange position where we're, we're both kind of like the, the political arm or we, we are the, the military arm of the government. We're the, the action arm of the government. But we have, we have feelings too. And, and I've got to say, stuff like that, that's a step, that's a step backwards. And that drastically hurts the credibility of the military and the people who wear the uniform. But that doesn't literally, that doesn't automatically discredit the people that wear the uniform. I think it's a much more complicated subject, one that we should be looking at and there needs to be more discourse on it. Um, but starting with, you know, bashing the entire military is not the right approach because we're affected by this just as much as you are. I read the news and that broke my heart. I have a follow-up question if you don't mind. In terms of, you know, not holding the entire military accountable for specific actions as a member of the military who is, you know, a recognized member of the military, I guess, you know, no longer an active member, but you were a part sure. of it. You will always will be for the rest of your life. Did you find it all? And, you know, if you don't want to address this per personally, that's fine. Sure. But did you find it all in your life that you were kind of, I don't necessarily say a victim of that, but kind of you were in the circumstances where people would then judge you based off of their perception of the military as a whole or, you know, a specific action that you had nothing to do with. Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, going back to what I said about my, my desire to join the SEAL teams, I kind of told the story of how ego and wanting to be great, you know, 
and I, I didn't even tell you that like I equate the SEAL teams with greatness. It was just kind of an understood in the conversation that I was equating the SEAL teams with greatness. That is a privilege of many, many years of other people in the duties of the Navy SEALs and m most of the duties, I wouldn't, maybe not most, but many duties that have been public have been heralded by our country. You know, there are things that the SEAL teams have done for this country that are objectively incredibly important and have done things that you know can't be discussed here and I'm not going to, that, have, that the, the risks people have taken to defend this country are enormous. And so, so for me, I'm equating greatness with the SEAL teams because I know about a lot of that stuff and I care about that stuff. Um, but when I joined, that was in 2011. And even though, you know, the, the war in Afghanistan, it was still, you know, raging, so to speak, um, it, we, weren't, we weren't as really ready to say no more. Politicians were using, were, were talking about it, and politicians definitely used the war in Afghanistan to both get elected and to, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a good piece of discourse. Um, but now, obviously, with the with the leaving of Afghanistan, there is a big shift in how members of former members of the military and the American public view the war in Afghanistan, and by extension, the way we view military members. And so, when I joined, it was really easy to equate SEALs with greatness because the the general public, you know, Bin Laden had just been taken out by by the Navy SEAL teams. That was a big story. You know, it's like I basically joined right as that happened. And so we call it public opinion of the military, of the SEAL teams was, was, let's call it high relative to what it is now. And so I've experienced both, oh, you're a Navy SEAL or, oh, you're a Navy SEAL, you're in the military. Thank you so much for your service. I've experienced a lot of that. And I'm incredibly grateful to be you know, told that. And it's my honor to do it. Um, and now it's the other side. You know, it's like it's not it's not the same thing. It's people don't jump at the opportunity to say, whoa. Navy SEALs, we need more of them. I mean, that is not where our country is right now. Um, I don't feel in any way attacked. I'm an adult, and I've made decisions in my life that have put me in different places. Um, but I don't take any of that personally. I think that the thing I tell um, aspiring military members, specifically aspiring Navy SEALs, because I, it's a small community. You get put in touch with people that want to become SEALs. It happens. It's just the way it goes. I tell them... And this is not to make me seem really cool. It's something that I really do fundamentally believe that, you know, the way the world, the, the civilian world, the American public that are not military, the way they perceive sacrifice, military sacrifice, uh, it's typically in blood and death, right? Because those are the things that are, are put on TV and those are the things that are, are a natural thing to talk about when we talk about sacrifice. And I'm not saying they're not. Those are people have bled and died for this country, and for and, and, and that, that is a hundred percent sacrifice. I'm not taking anything away from it, but there's another sacrifice that you make when you join the military, and that is sometimes people are going to hate you for what you do. It doesn't change the fact that someone has to do it. It doesn't mean the literal mission you're doing. It means the function of the military. Somebody is going to raise their hand. Someone is going to go into harm's way. And if you want to volunteer to do that, you need to accept that part of your sacrifice is that not only you might die, get hurt, maimed, et cetera, et cetera, uh, you may also be reviled by, your, by the very people that you are you know, trying to protect. And you probably don't have much of a say in what you're actually doing in the military. That's part of the sacrifice. If you're going to raise your hand, you have to go into that with open eyes. And so it doesn't offend me in the least if people have, if people are upset with the U.S. military. Good, you're thinking about what our country is doing outside of our borders. That's important. And so uh, I don't get offended by it. I, I, I am fully aware that the military is not perfect. 
uh, never was, never will be. Uh, I'm proud of what I've done. I'm proud of my service. Uh, but it doesn't mean that I'm tone deaf or that I'm not aware of the, the very public failings of the military. Um, so I, I've seen both sides and uh, I, I'm reading the news and I'm just as invested in, you know, getting to a better place as a country and as a, you know, as a human population, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Much more politely than I was going to say. So good on you for <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think that was a very nuanced way of looking at it. Um, I think it's a very so, real way of looking at it as well. I yeah, mean, you know, in terms yeah, of, especially sure. with the fact that, you know, recognizing and your acknowledgement of the fact that even though people may have specific opinions about whether it's you specifically or your representation in their mind of whatever element of the military that you represent to them, I think it's a really good take in the sense of, like that element of sacrifice that you were mentioning, because I feel like, you know, especially like someone like me as a civilian, it's not something that I innately think of, because it, it's very yeah. true. And even if, you know, I'm someone who recognizes that you're an individual and you may not represent everything in the military, it's also really interesting to think about the fact that, yes, you're a person, you're not affiliated with everything, but not only are you representative of that to certain people, but you also signed up for that. And that you had to kind of yes. make that conscious decision and, and knowing and recognizing on a daily basis that you have to have you have that responsibility on your shoulders and you went into that knowingly. Yeah. And I think that's a really great thing to emphasize for somebody who, you know, maybe supports the troops, but then doesn't like like I know for me, I've always supported the troops, but that gives me a whole new context as to why I should. And so, like, my, my level of respect for people who sign up for the military has now just increased dramatically. So, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Sure. Um, to, to get back into this, because we are <laughs> a little over time, we still got a long chat. Um, all right. So, uh, Stephen Van for $5 says, uh, just got to show Mr. Ballin some love. Um, thank you, Stephen. Uh, Nathaniel McCoy for $10 says, I don't get the chance to watch these often live, but I love this channel and I hope you guys are keeping this up. You guys are awesome. Thanks, man. That means a lot. This is, uh... Aiden, real quick, I'm just going to make a suggestion. Considering we're definitely not going to be able to get all super chats since they're yeah. probably going to keep coming in, you want to try and do a hard out at like 645-ish? Sure. Yeah, I can do probably one more and then I need to jet. Okay, yeah. sure. I'll, I will pick one specifically addressed to you then. Um... And thank anyone who's given super chats. Thank you guys for being so engaged and you yeah, know supporting you. the the lore the lore lodge here. <laughs> we need the support. <laughs> um, it's always appreciated. See, uh... trying to find a. Really and while he's thing. looking, if you know, uh, yeah. I mean, I know a lot of the people here are kind of coming from uh, your page, uh, John, but if there's anything that you want to update people on about anything that's happening in the near future with you or just anything along those lines mm. while we're waiting for him to find that last question. Uh, nothing, nothing that I'm prepared to announce at the second, but you know, nothing, nothing earth shattering. Probably just the, the next video. Um, I don't have a hard timeline for it, working on it. Um, I also want to say that we are working actively to be ready for another uh, Scarathon for the mm -hmm. for October. Um, the schedule's not built yet, but that is something that we're working on now. Um, so yeah, kind of my, my non-announcement is that I'm still working on things. <laughs> Fair enough. So, I mean, hey, as long as people know you're working on it, that'll get them excited, there I'm you sure. Go. There you go. Here. 
Uh, I think I have one. I got it. All right, let's go. Um, so this one was from Jen Frisbee for 25 Australian dollars. Thank you very much, Jen. And this one I picked because it, it goes back to, I think, one of your first like big videos on, on YouTube, um, mm-hmm. which uh, was the one about what you saw when you were on that New Hampshire. Trip. Yep. Yeah. And it's, uh, after knowing everything you know now, would you go back to your friend's cabin for a throwback snowboarding trip? Oh, man. Uh I mean, purely from a content perspective, I probably would go back. Uh, that would make for a heck of a video. Uh, you know, honestly, that 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 experience I had when I was 16, um, and for the the people that have not seen this video, uh, I stayed at a, a cabin up in the woods in New Hampshire uh, for a snowboarding trip when I was 16. And over the course of nights, um, for lack of a better description, there was like an entity moving around the house. Uh, that totally downplays the, the video. It's a very popular video on my channel. It's like a very raw and unedited, really, retelling of the story. Um, I uh, That really genuinely shook me up. And even today, when I think about it, even ha- after having read and, and covered so many stories, uh, thinking about that experience, was, in, was it was terrifying. And if it was just sleep paralysis that I was you know, for three nights in a row, I, I had sleep paralysis. Let's say that happened. And, and I think that realistically, that's the most likely thing. What I can't wrap my head around is how uh, my friends, I had two friends that were there with me. Um, one of their mothers was there. Uh, and she was like corroborating the things I was hearing and experiencing each morning. Um, and it was just so, so deeply unsettling and terrifying at the time that I was like literally afraid to ask follow-up questions or fearing that she had literally lost her mind or that she was telling the truth and that this, these things are really happening to me. Um, I, I guess what I'm saying is uh, I really don't know what happened in that cabin. I've never, I've never had any other even remotely paranormal or potentially paranormal experiences in my life. I mean, I, that's it. That's the one. And it could have been sleep paralysis, but it just, something was off about being there. And I mean, I talk about in the video how it kind of destroyed my relationship with the two friends I was with there. And people typically, when they hear that in the video, they're like, why, why would, why would you stop being friends with your two friends that were there with you? And it's like, this is like literally PTSD situation. This is like truly traumatic. And those two friends, I uh, literally at the time, at the time, now I could totally hang out with them they they brought me back to like this intense fear primal fear that i've yet to experience in my life and that's actually just that's true i have not experienced something more terrifying than when i was 16 at that cabin and that includes the night the night before my first combat operation i was terrified i mean terrified i i was on my knees praying the night before believing a hundred percent that i was going to step on an ied and die like i believed that to my core and this experience in New Hampshire when I was 16 was more terrifying. Like, uh, there are words that, that, there are no words. But if you watch the video, and I'm not encouraging you to watch my videos. Uh, no, watch the video. I, yeah, yeah, it's so, a good so, video. Uh, like, it's a very interesting video. So I think that uh, I would go back, but it wouldn't, I, I made the joke that it'd be good for content. But I, it actually, I, I don't know how excited I would be to be there. And I don't, I don't, know, if, I don't know if I'd do it, to be perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. I probably would, but it would be not as easy as you'd think. Yeah, understandable. All right. Well, uh, I guess that is uh, – we've kind of reached that hard limit of 645 yeah. here. Um, 
you know, uh, John, thank you so much for coming on. This has been like such a cool experience for us. You, you really are like one of my favorite content creators. Um, thank you. you know, and, and since, since every weird thing that happened that got Aiden and I here where we are right now, I've all, I think I've talked about you constantly. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. No, you're very yeah, respectful in your in your videos. Whenever you reference something that you might have picked up or been inspired by for me, so I appreciate I, that. I always try. I think I've missed it a couple of times, but I try to get it in there. No, you're good, man. I, I appreciate yeah. you, both of you. Thank you. Yeah, and I appreciate so much that you actually have like you know we're we're open to doing this and everything. It, um, you know, it's it's been really awesome, and I, you know, everything that's coming up, I have the the utmost respect for you and i am looking forward so much to see what you're doing next so thank you so thank much you for coming much. on if you want to plug thank anything you. i'm sure almost everybody here is here i'm good you, but... i'm good man this is right. let's, let's focus on your your channel hopefully everybody right. subscribes that's from my channel be sure to subscribe to lore lodge thank that's you. the channel you're on right now thank you man that means <laughs> thank, a lot. thank you very much all right uh aiden well, you want to plug all of our stuff real quick yeah sure um so for those of you who are new here uh i'm aiden mattis Zayden Thornbury, uh, we are the Lore Lodge. We do folklore, history, uh, we read scary stories, true and fictional. A lot of them I've actually written myself. Um, you'll see a little link in the description there. That is our, our card, our link tree, and that'll take you to Instagram, uh, Patreon, our merch store. You can go to the lorelodge.shop to get hoodies like this, which was drawn by my, my friend Norman, who is just a phenomenal artist. Uh, and yeah, we do this this show every Sunday or Monday. We're probably going to move it to Monday because it's just been at the point where that makes more sense for us. Uh, but yeah, follow me on Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, wherever. All of those are at the Aiden Mattis. And for Aiden, I believe you're on uh, Instagram and TikTok. What else? TikTok. Yeah, it's really not anything else relevant. Yep. So that's us. Uh, you know, thank you everybody so much for tuning in. This has been a great time and uh, hope to see a lot of you next time.